Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. So I'm, I'm here with uh, Professor Peter Kreeft of Boston College, and he's been at Boston College, if memory serves, since 1965. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, so it's a, that's, that's, what, that's what my grandma would call a career. And, well, that was the Jurassic Age. I think there were dinosaur footprints in our backyard. Um, and um, what interested me in speaking with him was actually his appearance on another podcast where he spoke about the first chapter of this book. Um, well, we're, we're audio. I'm showing the book to the three philosophies of life in which he considers Ecclesiastes, Job and the Song of Songs. He sees in Ecclesiastes life as vanity. Job is the life is suffering. Song of Songs Life is love. And while it's a a relatively thin book, maybe 140 pages, it's substantive enough so that I doubt we're going to get to very many of the very interesting points that he raises, but hopefully we'll get to some of them and, um, and I'll get, I'll, I'll be the beneficiary of this conversation and hopefully you who are listening to it will as well. But I want to start with a kind of an, kind of a, complaint, not about, not about my guest. I want to start with a kind of a complaint. I'm a rabbi. I'm a reform rabbi. And um, I've, I've been at this since 1983. And my main interest in one way or another has always been theology. There's always been the attempt to, to look for, understand, seek for, seek for, and experience God. Um, at one time or another, I've had the opportunity to read many, if not most, of the classic works of Jewish philosophy from the Middle Ages into the modern period. Um, and yet, in the world in which I live as a rabbi, as a pulpit rabbi, or for the time when I was a, a Hillel rabbi, I always found a continuing lack of interest in God. Um, it, it, almost a unanimity among people whom I would engage in conversation about this, that something like, well, God doesn't matter so much. I lead an ethical life. God doesn't matter so much. I engage in tikkun olam, the the big buzz phrase that's been with us for about a a generation. I repair the world. And my inability to construct a way of explaining to people that God matters has led to eternal frustration. I have one little, one little tiny anecdote in the midst of that. Um, I have a friend, he's a member of my current congregation in Columbia, Missouri, who's part of a traditional Shabbat morning minion. By traditional, it means we, we open up the prayer book, we recite the prayers in traditional melody, entirely in Hebrew. And this person is particularly good at it, and he reads Torah. And, and yet, when I engaged him in conversation at some point, outside of the context of Shabbat, he admitted to me that, you know, he liked doing it. It meant something to him that he did it, but he couldn't see anything connecting him to a deeper hole. Mm -hmm. And, And while I'm not saying that this is 
universal. I did use the word unanimity a minute ago. It's not totally universal. In particular, Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, I don't think will ever go out of business. There's a continuing interest in what Heschel had to teach. And what Heschel had to teach is somewhat parallel to what my guest has to teach. And I want to engage him in that somewhere along the way. Nevertheless, it's hard in this world to find God. And I want to open up with that, I wanted to open up with that statement and just to see how Professor Kraft would, re- would respond to that before we got down to his materials. I have deep sympathy with your uh, frustration that people find God boring because if God is boring, everything's boring. I mean, imagine Hamlet complaining that Shakespeare is boring. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that's designed by the creator and designer must be less than him. And if He's boring, then we're supremely boring. So why bother? So, so what, you, what you're saying is our, our inability to see to, to see beyond to see beyond our own mortality into the greater reality that we occupy. And and, and, that, I mean, and, yeah, and I, th- I, th- I think these people that you're talking about are really in the position of Ecclesiastes rather than in the position of Job. Uh, they are not atheists. They say, yeah, there might be a God, but he's like the moon. He's far away. It doesn't make a difference. Not even the tides of my life are, are ascribed to it. Uh, well, that's that's a boring God, and you may as well not be existing. So I want to, so I want to press you on that a little bit, because, because I know... I know that, that from what you're saying, I know that, what, that, that a very great deal lies behind what you've just said. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I have a good question, but I want to press you on that. Mm-hmm. Um, where, 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 how do we find the creator of the universe? Oh, that's a very different question. Uh-huh. Uh, you don't have to know how to do something in order to do it. How am I conscious of myself? That's a great mystery. Philosophers worry about that. Uh, But I am, I know that. How can I see things at a distance? I don't know enough about physics or optics to explain it, but I can do it. Uh, How do I make light go on in the room? I I flip the switch and the electricity works. I'm not an electrician. I don't know how it works. So those are reflective questions, secondary questions. After you do something, you reflect on how you did it. But we're finding God all the time. He's, He's usually anonymous. Go out into the sun and experience the warmth and the, uh, the, the light from the sun. Uh, yeah, the sun, I, know, I know the sun. I, you know, I know about the universe. I know astronomy, physics. No, the universe, is, the universe is not astronomy and physics any, any more than the United States is a map. Uh, astronomy and physics map the universe. The universe is real. It's concrete. Uh, maps don't give you heat or light. The sun does. Uh-huh. So, so that's, I mean, I mean, that's that's what that's what Heschel means when he, he uses that term. Um, uh, uh, he, I mean, he uses the term over and over again. Help me, I'm having a word finding problem here. You know, um, um, you go out the door and you say, "Oh, it's another day." My God. Um, well, it'll come to me in a minute. I'm sorry. It, 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 um, My favorite but, quote for Heschel: "Overwhelmed everything else." God is not an uncle. God is an earthquake. Yeah, um, um, I'm sorry. I can't. Well, I, I, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. The, the phrase isn't coming to me, but my listeners will, will know, and it'll, it'll come to me in a little bit. So I want to I want to shift from that a bit to um, um, to to explain. I mean, I want to ask you to explain 
the concept of faith and reason. I know it's a medieval concept. Mm. It comes into existence for a specific set of reasons. And, and I'm wondering if you could give a brief description of it, yeah. maybe, maybe historically, but also if it has a particular meaning to you that's somewhat different from its, its classical meaning. No, uh, I'm not that original. I'm not a creative, original, profound philosopher. I'm basically a transmitter to the people of the wisdom of the ages. So uh, what I say about faith and reason is pretty much what the medieval said. George Christian and Muslim all say about faith and reason. Uh, there's two dimensions to the problem. The psychological dimension and the ontological dimension. Uh, the act of faith in us, what motivates it? That's mysterious. How does it relate to the act of reasoning in us? That's also very mysterious and very variable. Uh, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't have that much to say about that dimension, important as it is. But the objective dimension, the ontological dimension, objective truths that you know by faith and the objective truths that you know by reason, how are they related to each other? Uh-huh. That's the question philosophers tend to ask. And for a very obvious reason, uh, namely that God is the author of both, they're compatible. They can't contradict. God does not contradict himself. Everything that we know by reason, common sense, philosophy, and natural science is compatible for, with everything that we know from divine revelation in all its form. But so, in that sense, if I mean, if faith is self-evident, um, it's not. It's not uh, self-evident. It's not self-evident. What was, no. the term you, what was the term you used? I'm sorry, I lost it. Uh, uh, known, not self-evident. Known. Okay, all right, known. If we faith, know. We know things in various ways. The things that we know are all objects of our knowledge. They're not the subjective process itself. We have to reflect on the subjective process after it happens in order to do psychology and wonder Uh about the act of faith and the act of reason. Admittedly complex and mysterious. So so, uh, if, you know, so reason is, is is what is what the mind teaches, yeah. and 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 it, it may be progressive. It may be, it may you know we, how we understand a thing may change for one reason or another over time, but what what puzzles me is is how faith is known. In, in other words, how you know if, if I have a faith claim A and a faith claim B, um, and faith claim B on the face of it is absurd, but I I, I say I say for my own personal psychology, that's a faith claim that's known to me. How do you how do you um, dissuade me from that from that conclusion? Well, I think faith is a kind of knowledge. I don't think we should limit knowledge to certain knowledge or knowledge that we can prove. Uh, I know that I heard it green, even though I've never seen it, and I know that you're a rabbi because you told me that. Well, I can't prove it, and I'm not absolutely certain, but I trust you. Faith on a human level. 99% of what we learn, we learn by faith in our teachers, our authorities, parents, teachers, society, scientists, experts, whatever. And I grant you that. And, it, and that's, but, uh, but then uh, since, since, since you're a Catholic theologian, um, I come to you and I say, you, you believe in, as a matter of faith, that Jesus is the son of God, died on the cross for the, mm-hmm. The, for the good of mankind. Mm-hmm. And I say to you, well, I'm a Jew and I have a problem with that faith claim. Mm-hmm. So how, how, do we, how do we talk about that? By reason, by the one thing we have in common. 
my faith differs from yours on that issue, so we don't have a common faith premise. Well, actually, we do. It's the same God. I mean, Jesus was a Jew. What he meant by God is exactly the same being that you mean by God. But we can argue from a faith premise theologically, or we can argue from rational evidence, from logic, uh, in, in a secular way. I, I can argue, for instance, that uh, if Jesus isn't who he claims to be, then he certainly deserves to be crucified because he's blaspheming our history. And that's a rational argument. Yeah, I, I I want to push this this one more one more way, and then we'll get into we'll get into some other matters that we talked about that we would talk about. Um, but what if I came to you with a faith claim? I, I used a letter a minute ago, but if I came to you with a faith claim that says, you know, I believe um, I can't come up with a good example. I believe X, but on the face of it, it's it's absurd. Mm-hmm. But, but I persist in believing it. Now, I guess your response is that we need to reason about it. Mm-hmm. And, and through and through reasoning about it, I'm either going to be brought to the understanding of the absurdity of my claim, or or what? Right, right. That's what we all have in common. Reason. I don't have my reason. You don't have your reason. There's no such thing as feminine logic and masculine logic or American logic and Chinese logic. There's just logic. Uh-huh. And evidence. We all have access to it. Find us that way. So that's a kind of indirect divine revelation. Everything that we know. Okay, um, so I did say I, I, here's one final random thing, but but it's relevant to our conversation and very relevant to me. Uh, in one of these chapters, you point out that Buber helped Martin Buber helped you a great deal in understanding that the uh, chapter in in uh, the Book of Exodus where God identifies Himself as Ehiyeh Asher mm-hmm. Ehiyeh, and I wonder if you could explicate that for us. I think it was I think it was Buber, maybe it was somebody else who pointed out that there's no distinction in the uh, Hebrew between uh, the present and the future tense. So it could be translated, "I will be what I will be," rather than "I am what I am." So it's an it's an assertion of 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 mystery, of total authority, of of our inability to to put God in a box and predict and control him, as well as uh, an ontological claim that He is the supreme meaning of reality. Um, could it also mean, and here I want to get back to an, an, a comment you make uh, in, in one of your chapters about process theology, that Ehiyasher, Ehiyah, could that, could, in the way that you're talking about this futurity, um, imply some kind of changing nature of God? Throughout I think the- process theology makes a very simple confusion. It's perfectly correct about us and about our knowledge, including our theological knowledge. That's always in process. That does not entail that God, the object of our theological knowledge, is in process. Uh, the laws of mathematics don't change, but I gradually learn more about them as I study them more. So you learn, if, if we're lucky, we learn more and more about God throughout our lives and throughout our history. So And about God's actions and God's relationship to us, which also changes. The relation between a changing thing and an unchanging thing has to be a changing relation. Think of uh, an old pendulum clock. The uh, uh, the ball uh, describes an arc and it changes, and the hinge does not change; it remains unchanged. Well, the uh, rod that connects the uh, the changing uh, ball with the unchanging hinge must also change. And therefore, how we relate to God and how God relates to us is indeed changing. So, process theologians are two thirds right. They're about uh, they're right about us changing and our relationship to God changing, 
but uh, they're not right about God himself changing. Because if he changed, he'd have to change either for the better or for the worse, then he's not supremely good. Okay. All right. So, so I want to I want to change I want to shift to your chapter on the Song of Songs, Shira Shiri. Um, so life is love, um, and I'm um, I'm focusing on the you, you in this book. He has 29, I think, different characterizations of what love is, what love means, and while they're all I think important and meaningful to me, what I guess because of my my um, interest in Martin Buber, who's whose philosophy starts with the notion of dialogue between a person and God, often with another person in the middle, but where God is always present. Uh, the, the third chapter, Love is Dialogue, strikes me as, struck, resonated with me. Um, and I will start, I, I will start even, um, before, prior to Buber, you must know Franz Rosenzweig. And, you know, Rosenzweig's Only theory- by name, I've never read it. Oh, okay. Well, you might be interested in, in at least in his chapter on Revelation, in in relation to Song of Songs. So I can I can hmm. give a little bit of this. He, he he starts off that chapter with that phrase, "Love is strong as death," hmm. and he sees Revelation as um, as a continuing um, um, F, uh, a continuing influence in in the world, M much like I imagine he gets it from the medieval philosophers that that individuals are fortunate enough to connect to. Uh, not everybody does, but, but significant people do. And they're so taken by that sense of revelation that, which is a vertical uh, phenomenon, he then, they, people then experience it uh, horizontally. I've had this, this and, I'm, and, I, and I'm holding off on what that, that, that sense of revelation is for a second. I've had that sense of revelation, and it's so powerful that I have to go tell everybody about it and work with everybody about it. And that's how we write holy books. That's how holy work gets done. And what is that sense that comes from the heavens? It's a sense of love. It's an overwhelming sense of love. It's, it's nonverbal, but it's so powerful that it demands to be verbalized. But because it's an interpretation of the verbal experience, of the nonverbal experience, it's, it's open to continuing interpretation. But that moment of, that moment of connection is just so powerful that it, it leads to religion. It, it, leads to, it, it leads to all kinds of uh, building of community. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think I disagree with that. Okay, good. Most of the religions in the world thousands of years ago were pagan polytheistic religions, and they were not religions of love. Their gods were, were rather terrifying and arbitrary, uh, and they were closer to nature than we are. So I think nature is ambiguous. Nature doesn't tell you that there is a god of love. It's divine revelation that tells you that he's a god of love, and that's a surprise. Uh, most most historians say what's different about Judaism is is the quantity. There's only one God, not many. I disagree. Yeah. I, that's important, but more important is the quality. Uh -huh. God is just and loving. That that was the real revelation. You don't get that out of nature. Yeah. So so I didn't I didn't say it clearly enough, and for which I have to apologize. It wasn't that sense that the, the source of that revelation was not nature. The source of that revelation is God. 
for for Rosenzweig. And if I gave you the impression that that it was that it was a natural phenomenon, I didn't. I I, I said it incorrectly. And, and it, it's a borrowing from you know the the notion of the medieval philosophers, the, the lowest of the uh, the lowest of the divine influences is the agent intellect, and that's 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 the aspect of of God most accessible to humanity. And then, and then you get Kabbalah that goes above, hmm. you get Jesus that goes above that. No, but the source is not natural. The source is the source is divine. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the fortunate person who has the ability to, to, to have that connection, but then goes about teaching it to other people. And then um, and then they learn other people learn it from that person. But let, let me let me quote from your chapter. Um, um, I'm going to read a good chunk of it. Can I, can I add one, one point here? The connection yeah. between knowing and loving is crucial here. Because uh, atheists like Nietzsche and Sartre uh, deal with uh, God as knowing them, which is why they're atheists. They don't want to be known. They, they, they hate something like Psalm 139, or oh Lord, you have searched me and known me, you know when I sit and wait stand, etc. hate that. Uh, and Sartre especially uh, says that you can't know and love the same person at the same time. And the fact that God can cut through that and say, I know you perfectly and I love you perfectly. That's the real revelation. That's patterns everything. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so, so this is the, this is your chapter of song of songs in your book. The poem namely song of songs is in dialogue form bride and groom singing to each other antiphonally because love is essentially dialogue and the form of a perfect poem manifests the content, the medium manifests the message. There are only three ultimate messages, three possible philosophies of life. According to atheism, there's only the human monologue with no God to dialogue with. According to pantheism, there's only divine monologue with no created world of free souls for God to dialogue with. All is one. Only according to theism is there dialogue between creator and creature. Only in theism does mankind confront an other. Thus, the dialogue between lovers manifests a whole philosophy of life. It is no accident that love poetry blossoms more in theistic cultures than in atheistic or pantheistic ones. I want to read a little more. The dialogue between male and female creatures reflects the dialogue within the creator, the dialogue between father and son that eternally becomes the Holy Spirit. Life is dialogue ultimately because life is a reflection of God and the very life of God. The eternal life of the Trinity is the dialogue of love. We are meant to be with each other because God is eternally with each other. Each otherness reaches into the very heart of God. One more sentence. Otherness, plurality, and individuality, society, and thus love, are ultimately as oneness. So I'm going to ask you to drosh on that. that that's, I, I think that's okay. wonderful. Um, even, even though it, as a Jew I'm reading a reference to the Trinity, mm-hmm. I think it's a wonderful way of thinking about the divine human relationship. Yes, we can argue about the theology of the Trinity, about the meaning of the word person and church and so on. But uh, we certainly agree that the meaning of life is love in dialogue with each other and vertically love and dialogue with God. So to extend that to God himself is not that much of a stretch. Uh, 
Trinitarian Christians love Buber, even though he's a Jew rather than a Christian, because of that philosophy of dialogue. He just doesn't take it the last step and say that God is three persons in, in a loving, knowing dialogue with, with each other. But I think he does say that God dialogues with himself, that God is not just a lonely person who's looking for somebody else to dialogue with, and, and he creates us because he's lonely. That would be absurd. So the, 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 the psychology, so to speak, of, of the Trinity, the need for, for dialogue, is as present in, in a Unitarian as in a Trinitarian. So, so tell me a little bit more about God dialoguing with God. What, what, tell me a little bit more about what that means. Well, we dialogue with ourselves. We, yeah. uh, even when we're lonely, uh, if, if we can split ourselves into two, and judge ourselves and ask ourselves questions and, uh, and teach ourselves, bite our minds into the teacher and the uh, student, uh, we can still live. But if we're in truly solitary confinement, we can't even do that. I think we go insane. Okay. Um, so just to finish up in this section, because I think I think I want, I want to take a minute or two and turn to Job. Um, and, and that may that may bring us to the end of our conversation. Um, but this sense of dialogue, this sense of openness to each other and to the other, and the, and the sense of the other in the form of God being open to us. Um, I, I guess I wanna ask you a little bit more about what, what, that, what, what, what that does to the, to, to the life of a human person. If we if we if we experience that if we're open to that notion um, between in the self to the other the, the the lowercase o other and the uppercase o other what kind of world does that build? The word that springs to mind is hope. Borders that we set on our knowledge and on our love and on our happiness and on our our future uh, are always finite. And if there's a God who's infinite, those borders are not. Absolute. We can, we can hope to go beyond them. What form that transcendence takes uh, is very varied. Uh, even an atheist goes beyond himself in, in, let's say, reaching out and teaching other people atheism for the honest, sincere, but mistaken reason that they're oppressed by this uh, fairy tale God. Uh, e even that is, is a form of hope. Not grounded in objective reality. There's no real God there. But if there's no God, there's no point to transcending ourselves. All we can do is blow up our balloon until we die with a pop. Okay. All right. Now, I, I, from from dialogue and love to suffering, uh, to maybe maybe not a particularly good trajectory. But I like I like what you say about how Job's suffering kind of resolves itself. And, and I'm actually going to start where you cite um, Viktor Frankl on page 81 of the book. He speaks of this experience um, of, start, of, of startling, sudden reversal of standpoint or perspective in the context of the concentration camps. In, he says in Man's Search for Meaning that many of the prisoners learned to stop asking the question, what is the meaning of life? and realized that life was asking them what their meaning was. Instead of continuing to ask life, why are you doing this to me? I demand an answer. 
They realized that life was questioning them and demanding an answer, an answer in deeds, not just words. They had to respond to, the, to this question, this challenge by being responsible. Even when they did not interpret life as God's instrument, when every life was an abstraction rather than a person, they felt, a, they felt it questioning them, as the millions of people who have met near-death experiences felt the being of light questioning them, rather than vice versa. Hmm. So, so this is one piece of the way you deal with Job's suffering. Um, r- rather than rather than throw up your hands to the to the problem of evil, you see something in 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 in, in the in the book of Job and the conclusion of the book of Job seen in, in seen paradigmatically in this uh, in, in this passage from Viktor Frankl as not ameliorating suffering, not eliminating suffering, but in suffering seeing. It's, suffering is, is maybe inevitable, it's painful, but out of it comes things that are redemptive, if I've got it right. Yes, yes. And psychologically, that's the change from passivity to activity. When you see suffering as passive, something that happens to you, you naturally say, why me? And there's no ultimate answer to that question in this life. But when you see suffering as opportunity, Uh, not necessarily an opportunity for wisdom or growth or virtue or something particular, but as as a challenge that you have to only uh, respond to by action, and you act into that suffering, and you fill it with whatever meaning you think there can be in it, then you're proactive instead of reactive. And that enlightens the eyes. It's the heart and the will that has to choose to take that attitude towards suffering. When it does, it enlightens the mind. The saying in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, orthopraxy leads to orthodoxy. And uh-huh. Right practice leads to right understanding. Uh, and I think that's a, a, a suffering is the prime example of that. To suffer well. Yeah, you know, be worthy I, of your suffering. To use your suffering. In this uh, that's a triumph. Yeah, you know, in this conversation, I'm reminded of an organization. I don't know if it still exists or not. It's it's, it's an organization composed of disabled men and women called mm-hmm. Not Dead Yet. And, <laughs> and, and it exists to protest uh, the encroaching notion that people who are disabled ought to be euthanized. And these, people, these are people who are saying, no, you know, I, I am I am what I am. I, I, I am what God has made me. But my life has meaning nonetheless. And leave me the hell alone. Well, the origin, the origin of the success of Nazism was basically those doctors that, uh, that said exactly the opposite. Some lives are not worth living. Right. And then right. they gradually expanded, expanded the categories of those lives that were not worth living. And they claimed to be doing the world a favor and being compassionate. 